thank you for listening to the latest episode of the podcast. Today I'm speaking to Maria Teresa Zapier, who is Chief Impact and Blended Finance Officer at Blue Orchard, a sustainable asset management boutique which is owned by Schroders, about what she does in terms of blended finance, her vision of sustainability going forwards, and her past career at the likes of development banks and what she thinks that those in asset management for private investments can learn from that. Thank you, Maria Teresa, for joining me on the podcast. Before your current job, you worked in several emerging market countries, starting with Eswatini, then known as Swaziland, in the 1990s. What were your first impressions when you arrived? Okay, yes. So, Fergus, first of all, I went there because I was uh, a young economist, very interested in uh, development economics. And uh, I had this incredible opportunity to work there for the Ministry of Finance. And my first impression was that uh, I was, in a way, very different from my surroundings. In fact, I was the only, uh, if you want, uh, white female person working in, uh, in the ministry. And I had this incredible opportunity to actually uh, participate in very senior meetings with the minister himself. Uh, so fantastic opportunity as a, as a young economist. I always dreamed about being in emerging markets on the side of the emerging markets So clearly great opportunity to uh, to be there and great memories yeah um and what was your job when you were there as in what did it entail so i was actually responsible for uh, public enterprises so all the public enterprises which were mainly utilities in uh, in different sectors were in the process of uh, really becoming more private sector oriented uh, so the assignment really entailed, uh, a, I don't want to say a privatization of these utilities, but certainly uh, making them more efficient in terms of services, making them more efficient in terms of, uh, uh, you know, costs. And, uh, and so the entire, uh, you know, assessment was really on how you could uh, increase uh, efficiencies in uh, these uh, utilities, which I say, as I say, were you know, publicly owned enterprises, but clearly with, you know, an objective of, uh, um, you know, going towards, uh, you know, a private best practice uh, uh, standard. Yeah, and you also lived in Uzbekistan and in the Philippines before you came to Switzerland. You had a variety of different roles. Um, What are your most valuable memories from these roles and how did they compare to each other? So really valuable memories, I mean, certainly from uh, uh, the uh, my Asian Development Bank experience is that I had the chance to work in uh, a range of uh, back then uh, incredible markets. Uh, China was one. I worked also a lot on Indonesia, on Pakistan. And and the you know the, the the memories were there that at that point I was working in the in the transport sector. And so we were, you know, financing uh, large infrastructure projects. And uh, but, you know, just to give you an, an idea of the terrific, uh, uh, you know, type of markets we were building, um, uh, we were building, uh, you know, projection on traffic, uh, potential traffic flows on these highways. And 
and we were doing these, you know, very long spreadsheets over the years. And three years later, you know, they had already achieved, uh, you know, the level of traffic that we had projected for 10 years down the road. So clearly economy is uh, growing extremely fast at a pace that, you know, in, in old Europe, even back then we were not uh, used. And, and if I may, on Uzbekistan was very interesting. I, I arrived there, I barely spoke, uh, you know, a word of Russian and I, um, I didn't really know what to expect, uh, but straight away I sort of found this uh, amazing, uh, uh, you know, opportunity to know the history of the country, you know, in the middle of the Silk Road, uh, a very refined culture, beautiful cities like Samarkand and Bukhara and an incredible opportunity in terms of, uh, you know, private sector development. I always thought that if a private sector entrepreneur could make it there, could make it anywhere, because there were so many bottlenecks on, you know, importing goods, on, uh, um, you know, foreign exchange, uh, conversion uh, challenges. It's interesting you say that, and uh, because we have also had in an already recorded episode, uh, Thomas Hugger, who runs a frontier markets company, and they actually have an Uzbekistan-specific fund. What's it like for you now you've left looking back at these regions? Have you seen them change a lot since? What's it been like watching that from the outside? So watching them from the outside, but also from the inside, because we have uh, a number of uh, funds that, uh, you know, still are, have exposure in Central Asia. And in particular, I had the, the opportunity to go back there uh, maybe uh, three years ago. And uh, what, I, what I felt was that the economy had incredibly, you know, had been liberalized with respect to the 90s when I was there. Um, you know, you could exchange currency without having really to worry about the black market. Uh, and uh, you would see, you know, a lot of imported goods in the market. And also you'd see, you know, a financial sector much more tuned on uh, working with, uh, you know, small and medium enterprises. So certainly, you know, a big uh, really development. Uh, in 2008, you came to Switzerland you came to work at Blue Orchard, an asset manager there. And as someone who has managed financial development projects in emerging and frontier markets, what do you think that ESG-minded investors who have only ever lived in developed markets get wrong? Yes. So I think uh, one one aspect that uh, it's it's clear when you are based in emerging markets, you are clearly... Uh, you very accustomed uh, with is the fact that the risk that is very often portrayed in emerging markets is uh, is much bigger than what you actually uh, leave. And so the first thing that I, I um, you know, I uh, perceive is that even just, you know, telling about my CV, I still remember in, in a meeting, uh, uh, in, you know, in uh, in Milan, people were didn't even know where to put on the map Uzbekistan. At the same time, we're work we're talking about this, uh, you know, huge you know macroeconomic risks. So, so I think the one thing that you you really uh, can uh, uh, you know very clearly explain is that the risks perceived in a number of emerging markets are significantly higher 
when there is not direct emerging market experience. That's interesting. So how do you think that then impacts investor behavior? Are they more cautious than they perhaps ought to be? Absolutely. And I think this has, has actually changed over time. Uh, I think, uh, you know, today, if I think, for example, the the hedging capacity that you have for currency risk in the markets has significantly, uh, you know, increased. Uh, so even markets where, I don't know, African markets where you had significant challenges in, you know, hedging the currency now, you know, are, have, you have, uh, you know, commercial counterparties that can hedge these currencies. Uh, the, 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 just really to keep going on, on the hedging, you know, the, the hedges for some of these currency used to be very short term. Now they are longer term. And uh, and overall, uh, I think, uh, uh, you know, investors are much better at uh, really, if you want, uh, assessing and evaluating these emerging market risks. Okay. And having worked at a development bank and the different roles you've had in your career, how did they compare for you to working at an asset manager? So it's interesting. I think the mandate of development finance institutions are you know, in a way, very different. They are in, in certain situations, really market building. So they need to, if you want, prepare the turf for private sector, private, private sector actors to then really move in. And, uh, and also they have a very strong role in terms of additionality. Um, you know, in these, in these days, talking about Ukraine, I've just seen that my former um, you know, employer, the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development has just put up a 2 billion uh, euro uh, scheme uh, for building resilience in Ukraine and neighboring markets. So this is certainly something that, you know, a private sector actor would not be able to do, will probably not have the mandate, you know, that geopolitical understanding that a development finance institution has. Okay. And which elements of how the kinds of institutions that you worked at before, how they operate, have you introduced at Blue Orchard? So certainly one element that has been uh, key in the experience that have been there and that have transferred to Blue Orchard is the importance of looking at very closely at whom you do business with. I think this is in emerging markets, you certainly want to, you know, ensure that you have uh, alignment of uh, with the principles of the business, be it in private equity or private debt. And, uh, and so there is quite a lot of, you know, analysis that is done on the corporate governance of, uh, you know, the management team of the, let's say, shareholders of the companies you work with. And I think in this development finance institution also because, of, you know, they, they generate IR, uh, maybe not the fastest, but they are very detailed in these uh, in these analysis of you know what could be who are you going to do business with, and uh, I think reputational risk is very high on their list, uh, and uh, and so that's why a lot of due diligence actually goes into really choosing the right partners. Okay, and you've also overseen blended finance mandates, which have private and both public funding combined how do you make sure that these work together harmoniously yes yeah, so, so we actually have written a paper on uh, 
so-called blended finance 2.0. And the, the, the objective of our reflection after, you know, 15 years of experience in really managing blended finance mandates at Blue Ocean was really try to see what works and what doesn't work. And certainly one thing that works is when the private sector is involved uh, from uh, almost day one in the, um, in the design of these uh, strategies. And so when effectively the strategy is led by potentially development finance institution, but it also involves um, you know, the private sector and potentially you know, institutional investors from uh, almost day one. This is because in that case, really, also the institutional investors have, you know, a say in terms of exactly the level of risk that they feel comfortable with, but also expected returns and also other things that are really important in the context, for example, of asset management and fund management generally in emerging markets, you know, problems like liquidity uh, and, uh, you know, country diversification. You have also worked, as you said earlier, helping to privatize state-owned companies. Do you personally have ideological views on whether private markets are the best way to help people or on the best way that they can be used? Yeah, so I'm not sure if I have ideological views, but I think that uh, I've seen, uh, uh, you know, the private sector companies and entrepreneurship really has uh, an amazing way to actually achieve development in some of these uh, markets. Um, and, you know, in Blue Orchard, for example, we are big believers that financial inclusion and provision of and access to financial services for, you know, micro entrepreneurs, small and medium enterprises are actually a way to, to really ensure that, uh, you know, potentially you can also tackle inequalities in some of these markets. So I still think that there is, you know, effectively a positive uh, aspect of uh, private sector development and flourishing in, in emerging markets. I saw on Blue Watch's website, you have the example of a Mongolian cattle herder as one of the kind of people that you extend credit to. How do you carry out the risk assessments for such loans and how do you assess the potential of mass default over such a widely spread portfolio? So, I mean, the case that you're looking at is, uh, is certainly something that, uh, you know, it's very vivid in, uh, in my mind. We, we had very similar clients as well in, uh, you know, in Central Asia. So I think there what is interesting, first of all, uh, uh, when uh, you deal with uh, what I call a bit the base of the pyramid, so really micro-entrepreneurs, by definition, they are so um, you know, risk-averse themselves that they will you know, think twice about not, uh, not repaying a loan. In a way, you know, this is their in the incredible opportunity that they have to formalize their business and to really enter into the former financial sector. And uh, and also, I think it's important to say that, you know, when you see the cattle herder, we're not lending directly to these um, to these businesses, but we are lending through local financial institutions in these markets. So really, we have, if you want, uh, uh, you know, that the, the opportunity to work really at uh, different layers. Um, the first level would be to select financial institutions that have 
social performance management processes and credit underwriting that meet you know, our, our standards, both from a financial and credit risk assessment and from an impact perspective. And the second level is really, really looking how they select, you know, the, the end clients. So it's really a value chain approach where we look carefully at the local financial institutions and try to strengthen them in their own markets and also look at their end clients. As you and Blue Orchard have been working with sustainable finance for a very long time, we've seen the whole ESG movement really take off in the mainstream financial world. Are there elements of this movement that you think have been particularly half-hearted or aren't going to have very much impact? So, I mean, I guess the the real um, the real reply is that there is a big difference between looking at uh, you know, sustainability risk and so ESG risks that uh, are only, if you want, uh, concerning you because they may reduce your financial performance and looking at sustainability risk and positive and negative impacts because you firmly believe that in addition to a financial performance, you also want to have, uh, you know, social and environmental goals. So I see the two things as really very separate. And I think uh, that uh, the way sustainability risks are more and more, you know, looked at is really almost under the second lens where you not only, you know, want to reduce any negative impact on your financial performance, but really see where there is, you know, potentially in uh, innovation in technology where there are actually market up, you know, upside uh, aspects that you can also take into consideration when looking at more, you know, from an impact lens. Yeah. And we've seen, obviously, there's been a lot of hype over the last few years, especially about the environmental opportunities. A number of these stocks have suffered quite sharp declines over the last few months or so. Do you think that there's potential that we could have some kind of impact investing bubble in the future? First of all, I think everything that is attracting a lot of attention eventually, in a way, there is a risk of a bubble. Um, As long as the practitioners and as, you know, the actors in the impact investing industry follow best standards, I think we should be able to um, avoid, uh, you know, should be able to avoid this. And this is why part of the role of Blue Orchard has been actually to promote, uh, if you want, uh, best impact investing processes and tools in order to really say what we do and walk the talk as opposed to, you know, sell ambitious targets and then uh, running short of expectations. So I guess at heart, you think the key to ESG actually delivering meaningful progress rather than just making investors feel happy about themselves is not setting targets that are ludicrously overambitious. Okay. And 
do you think that you see in products perhaps from rival companies or in plans from individual listed stocks per se, people who are setting really ludicrously ambitious targets or even governmental targets for things like decarbonization? Yeah, I think there is a bit of a race of, uh, you know, setting the bar higher in order to... uh, get into the you know the the first page of the of the financial times there's certainly being a race towards setting targets that very often are you know uh, certainly ambitious and and probably not realistic um, but this is why I think the regulator has also have also stepped in into this market uh, really trying with you know the taxonomy with the uh, sustainable finance disclosure regulation trying to really request disclosure and uh, request disclosures of what are the features, for example, of sustainable investments and, uh, and really start setting, uh, you know, some uh, expectations and, uh, on, on what really investors need to be informed about so that they effectively know that if it is an ESG integrated strategy, that's what they are buying into. But if it is a you know, a sustainable investment strategy, that's what it means. As ESG has become such a mainstream movement, Blue Orchard itself has actually been bought by a mainstream asset manager, Schroders. How do you keep your identity while you're owned by such a large company which offers so many more standard products? So I think what what is uh, what has been interesting is that uh, the motivation of uh, of Schroders and the motivation of this partnership between Schroders and Blue Orchard has really been to to start, if you want, uh, exploring the impact investing uh, opportunity, and to start doing this, you know, there there, there would have been, I guess. Uh, two possibilities to do it uh, organically and uh, or to do it inorganically and i think the fact that they chose the partnership with blue orchard was to recognize that you know impact is uh, requiring the same the same level of you know expertise and capabilities the same rigor that they have had on the esg side and that probably really this independence of blue orchard was exactly what they were looking in uh, you know to almost amplify in order to be you know pure and absolutely clear of uh, you know seeing these not just as an expansion of the impact range but more as really a, a separate uh, part of their potential offering how much involvement do they have in your management so in our management they uh, they certainly are as you know uh, uh, represented in uh, in our board uh, what I think maybe that the, the involvement on the positive side is that uh, we have had a, a range of opportunities to actually to develop uh, investment strategies with them. For example, they've been seeding the uh, the COVID fund. We had a COVID-19 uh, uh, emergency fund for small and medium enterprises in emerging markets. And they've been participated as, you know, as as a limited partner. So, you know, they have given us the opportunity, to, if you want, to see the initiatives and and to really, uh, if you want, uh, uh, almost, uh, you know, accelerate the growth, especially of innovation uh, in terms of impact investing. Okay. And then do you think that, for you as a kind of impact investing boutique, even if you are now owned by a larger player, do you think you need to disrupt existing asset management business models to do your job properly? 
I think from time to time we do need to have this role. And, uh, you know, I, I, for example, one, one topic in which we have been very proactively and very vocal has been uh, the importance of just transition. We have participated in the G7 IMPA task force uh, last year. And, uh, and part of the involvement of Blue Orchard was to make sure that all our 20 years of experience in financial and social inclusions were not somehow overshadowed by you know, the big focus on climate. And so the focus on, for example, that has been a case where we have, you know, focus any, any, if you want, climate strategy together with the G7 Impact Task Force, not only to really think about you know, the E, but also to keep thinking about the S and the G, and especially, if you want, uh, Fergus, in emerging markets to really, you know, make sure that the populations that are impacted by these climate changes can be not only the victims, but also the, if you want, protagonists and leaders in, in the transition and, and in really the resilience to climate change. And what are your plans at Blue Orchard for the future? Do you have any new kinds of products that you're really excited about? So indeed, what we has been really exciting has been to really uh, start uh, you know, move from, you know, a simple, uh, if you want, a private debt provider to a provider of uh, uh, listed debt. So, so today we have two fantastic opportunities in terms of uh, uh, bonds uh, offering. And I think this is great because we move from private assets to public assets. And also we have really started developing, and now this is uh, already a few years ago, a practice in sustainable infrastructure and, uh, and a practice in private equity that is very innovative in climate insurance. So if you want now, when we think about you know, a topic like climate, we have different type of strategies in climate adaptation, in climate mitigation, and potentially also in, in natural capital, uh, you know, coming up. So we are becoming much more a thematic impact investor and we have solution across, you know, different asset classes and different themes. On a wider level, how much are the new opportunities in impact investing enabled by a wider understanding of it as a phenomenon in mainstream asset management and also in public understanding? So I think that the understanding has uh, significantly increased. We used to say that, you know, impact investing is uh, is a, a niche of the, you know, wider market. We see now much more uh, impact investing as a, as a mega trend. Partly is because also we are starting to see, you know, 10, 20 years in the case of Blue Orchard of track record of performance. Uh, so, you know, we, we are not anymore anecdotal in terms of achieving financial returns, but we have, you know, strategies where we can show in a, you know, in a longer um, time horizon what has been delivered. And, and also partly because, you know, more and more these, um, you know, the old fashioned uh, uh, idea that there is a trade off between uh, risk, you know, and uh, 
um, you know, risk and impact. And so that you have to somehow, if you want to have a very impactful strategy, give up, you know, on, uh, on returns and have a high risk, you know, all of this is, is really part of the, of the past. I think there is really more and more the understanding that, uh, you know, innovation, especially in emerging markets is a key and that this innovation can both have, you know, interesting financial uh, returns combined with incredible, you know, positive impact. Thanks for listening to the Thanks I Quit podcast with Fergus Horsfall from CityWire. You can subscribe or listen to previous episodes by searching for the podcast on your streaming service or heading to the website podcast.citywire.ch.